Okay, welcome to um, Tanya Life. Um, and this class, what I want to um, what I want to discuss is not the Tanya itself per se, but its backstory, where it comes in, what its purpose is, what it what it wants to accomplish, what it has accomplished, and what it could accomplish for you. So what I'm going to give you right now is like a is like a um, a uh, overview class of a lot of a lot of um, of the backstory behind the Tanya, which if you would open the book, you wouldn't get from the first page, and you wouldn't get from the last page either. It takes I learned this from my teachers, and I, I'm hoping to give it over to you. So allow me just allow me to start with a story. I know of a rabbi, Rabbi Yaakov Biederman, who is the head shliach, the chief Chabad rabbi in Austria. He lives in Vienna, many Chabad rabbis in Austria. Um, if you didn't know, now you know. But Rabbi Biederman is the head Chabad rabbi. He was there first. Um, about 30, 35 years ago when he moved out um, on, on, uh, on Shlichus, so he established his Chabad center and he started noticing that on a monthly basis, on a monthly basis, there was a donation coming from a certain individual who he never met, he never solicited. And this individual is named Dr. Victor Frankel. Small donations, but pretty consistent for the first few years of Hishlachas. He never met Dr. Frankel. He never had a chance to meet him, but he's getting donations to his Chabad house. And he never really had an explanation to this. Um, he never really had an explanation to this phenomenon. Many years later, in 1995, the explanation came, came to him. What happened was he met a lady, his name is Margareta Chayas. And they're talking, and she says, you know, Rabbi Biederman, you think you're the first Chabad rabbi in Vienna. You think you're the first shliach of, shliach of the rabbi in Vienna. Really, I'm the first shliach of the rabbi in Vienna. Looks at her, she's not a religious woman. Like, what's the story? What do you mean you're the first Chabad Shliach in Vienna. She says, I'll tell you the story. The story is that I used to live in Austria permanently. Then I moved. But I used to always visit because I had family here. One time I was in New York. And, and, and I ended up by the, the Rebbe. Ended up by the Lubavitcher Rebbe. And in the midst of my conversation, I mentioned I go to Austria often to visit. Because I used to live there. The Rebbe asked me if I could do him a favor. He has a special mission for me. Next time you go to Austria, please contact my secretary. I really have a mission for you. Okay? A few weeks later, a few months later, wherever, wherever it was, her itinerary called for going to Austria. She called up the Rebbe's secretary, and the Rebbe's secretary told him, this is the mission. The Rebbe wants you to go to a certain Dr. Viktor Frankl in Austria and give him the following message. Do not give up. Do not despair you will grow one day, you will become big. So she was not very familiar with Dr. Viktor Frankl because he was not so well known as he is known today. Who's Dr. Frankl? If, you, if people are not so familiar with, I'll just give a quick history. So he's actually a contemporary a colleague, maybe a little younger than Sigmund Freud. Sigmund Freud was one of the great uh, pillars of modern psychology, psychiatry. And Sigmund Freud had a philosophy, which was the standing philosophy of the day. 
um, in at that time, um, which is that man, in in their essence, are made of impulses and um, and desires, and the the deepest part of the person is pleasure seeking, and therefore his entire life revolves around that very basic trait. Basically, at the at our core, we have the id, which is basically an animal. So you're basically an animal. That was the philosophy. Dr. Sigmund Freud actually subscribed to this philosophy up until the Holocaust, because he, as a Jew, went through the camps. In the camps, he noticed something that completely threw the entire philosophy away. He noticed that people in their most dire straits, hungry, starving, were able to rise above the instinct of the moment and be selfless. He's, he's seen acts of selflessness of people who are literally starving to death. And he realized that that can't be what, what's at the core of a person is all they have is just desires and impulses. There must be something deeper. After the Holocaust, he came up with a new philosophy, logotherapy, which the name of his book was Man's Search for Meaning because he says that the, at, the, at, the, at, the, at the heart of a person is a person searches for meaning. He wants meaning in his life, and that's what drives him. But the problem was that he started teaching this philosophy and he had a very, very hard time. He, had a, he was actually head of a clinic. He had an actual clinic. And he was also a professor in the university. But um, in his clinic, it was his private practice. For the university, he was shouted down. Sometimes a lot of hecklers. He was driven out. A lot of even younger, you know, even his students, you know, it wasn't the, the contemporary thinking of the time. So he was going against the grain. And this is who Dr. Frankel is. And this lady... She comes to Vienna, she asks around, they point, they point her to the clinic, go to the clinic. She comes, she says, can I see the doctor? She said, you know, the doctor hasn't actually been here for a while. He hasn't come in for a while. We don't know where he is. we don't know why, but someone gave her the address of his house. So she approaches the house and she sees hanging in the house as, uh, as a cross that she was like surprised that the Rebbe is sending a message to the person who lives in such a house. Dr. Victor Frankel wasn't married to, married to a Jew, so they had like a, a mixed household. Anyway, she rings the bell and a woman answers. She said, can I see the doctor? So she said, wait one minute. She goes to the back and Dr. Frankel comes out to the front. And she says, I have a message from the Lubavitcher Rebbe in Brooklyn, New York. So he says, his, his entire demeanor changed. He says, come in. I want to hear the message. So she sits down and she says, this is the message the Rebbe told me is don't give up. Go forward, don't despair, and you will succeed. And she tells Rabbi Biederman, as she's describing this story, she says, I never saw an adult react this way in my entire life. Literally, as I said that, he burst into bitter tears. And he, t he points at the table, he picks up a stack of papers, and he shows her that these are my immigration papers I'm filling out to go to Australia. He wanted to leave everything behind. He wanted to go to Australia, be a hermit somewhere, and just forget about it. But the Rebbe, the Rebbe's message saved him. In fact, many years later, Dr. Biederman actually decided he was going to do research to validate the story. And he called up Dr. Viktor Frankl. Uh, he had his information because of the donations and, and he, he, he called him up, he was in his 90s. A very impatient old man. And he said, I just want to ask you a question on the phone. Does the Lubavitcher Rebbe, does that mean anything to you? The name Lubavitcher Rebbe. So all of a sudden he had a lot of time and patience. He said, of course. And in German, he told him at a very, very dire moment, he really, really saved me.
And we all know what happened. Dr. Victor Frankl published his book. It was translated into 12 plus languages, 10 million copies or, or more by now uh, sold, and it transformed what we think of, of the human being. But we see from the story is that the Rebbe found it very, very, very important to encourage this man to continue in his life's work. Why? Because this philosophy is ever more closer to the philosophy that the Rebbe himself promoted. A philosophy that the Rebbe has as a tradition from seven generations of Chabad Rebbe, starting from the first Chabad Rebbe who created the Tanya. However, however, I'm now going to argue with what I just said. Man's search for meaning, yes, is a step closer to the philosophy of Tanya. But if you want to really understand what Tanya is about, I will tell you that meaning is really not at the core of what a person is. And therefore, I want to tell you, I want to ask you, what is the difference between the word meaning and the word purpose? I believe the difference between the word meaning and the word purpose really gives an encapsulation of the difference between the philosophy of the, of the, in the humanities, albeit a very, very high philosophy and a very good philosophy, definitely closer to Torah thought, 100%, but yet not there. Purpose is what really defines the Tanya. Definition of meaning is basically sense in the emotional language. When something makes sense, that's intellectually, it makes sense. Meaning is sense, whatever sense means in the, in the intellectual, is in the emotional language. In other words, to you, it's, it fits. Meaning is comfortability, right? A person wakes up in the morning, he goes to work, he wants to have meaning in what he does, because otherwise it's dry, right? He goes and does, uh, he goes throughout his life and does tasks, but you know what, he wants to help out a fellow person because he wants to have some meaning in his life. People volunteer, they go to work, but they volunteer because they have, want to have some meaning. They come to show, they want to have meaning, right? It's a comfortability. If you don't have meaning in your life, you feel like you're missing something. It gives, it gives substance. It's, the, it's a spiritual component to your physical mundane life. But, per, but meaning is selfish. Purpose is divine. Okay? You could find meaning in something and it has nothing to do with godliness. You could find meaning in something that has nothing to do with any divine will. You found meaning. People, some people find meaning in, 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 in the... In, in, in things that are, are in, in Torah language, just as mundane as anything else. But they find meaning in it. They find meaning, you know? They, they, they find meaning in sitting on the beach and watching the water. Yeah, that, could be, that could be meaningful. It could be a meaningful experience, 100%. And you know what? It's a little more spiritual than just being coarse and, 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 uh, and, and stuffing your face with sushi all day. You know, sitting on the beach is probably a little bit better. But, so the meaning you're serving yourself. Exactly. Purpose, by its definition, by its definition, means that someone gave you this purpose. In other words, purpose is divine. Now, when you deal with purpose, purpose is very scary because a lot of baggage comes with the word purpose. Okay? You have to assume a lot of things. Number one is you have to assume that there's, there's a, there, if, if there's purpose, if there's a creation, there's purpose to the creation. You have to assume that there's a creator, that there's a creation, that there's purpose, to the creation that the creator put that put purpose in the creation and, and the creator gave you a particular purpose if you have purpose in your life that means your purpose within some sort of framework it doesn't come isolated so there's a lot a lot of assumption that comes over there it's a little bit scary purposeful it's a little, little scary purpose meaning is a little, is more comfortable let's put it that way purpose gets you a little uncomfortable so the big difference between um, the, 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 the thoughts of the, in, in, in the humanities psychiatry of, of, um, of Viktor Frankl, even if it may be the most 
more spiritual. It's a more spiritual interpretation of human experience than Sigmund Freud. It doesn't come anywhere near a book like Tanya. Because Tanya is not psychiatry, it's not, it's not psychology, it's not philosophy. It literally deals with one thing and one thing only. It deals with purpose. It deals with purpose. And therefore, the Tanya finds it necessary to explain to you what the purpose of creation is, what your purpose in this creation is, and how you could accomplish that purpose as well. So it goes through all these things. That is the backstory of Tanya. Let me take you back another story. I'm going to take you back to a time about 250 years ago in a small little town in Ukraine named Anipol. Anipol. Two great men lived in Anipol. One's the man, one man's name was Meshulam Zusil. The other man's name was Yehuda Leib HaKoyen. Okay? Two great, great Hasidic masters. One lived at one side of the town. The other one lived on the other side of the town. One day, a messenger comes into town. And he's holding, in his, in his back, he's holding two manuscripts. He knocks on the door of Meshulam Zushal. And he says, Reb Zusha, that was his nickname, Reb Zusha, I brought with you a manuscript from your friend, Reb Shneir Zalman. Oh, Reb Shneir Zalman was a, another Hasidic rabbi living in the town of Liadi. He says, thank you so much. He takes the manuscript, he sits down, and he starts to read. As he's reading, the messenger goes across town and goes to Rabbi Yehud Daleib house. And he says, Rabbi Yehud Daleib, I'm a messenger from Rabbi Shneir Zalman. And I brought with you a manuscript. He wants you to read it. So Rabbi Yehud Daleib takes the manuscript. says, oh, thank you so much. Amazing. He starts to read. Both men, separate sides of town, are reading. They're reading. And same manuscript. And they're reading and reading and reading. The hours go by. The night becomes night. And late night, and people are going to sleep, and the lights in the town are going out, but there's two houses in town with the lights still on. Both Rav Zusha and both Rav Yehudalev HaKoyen, they cannot put down the manuscript. It is so enthralling, it is so engaging, they are reading and reading. Till late into the night, they do nothing else but read through the manuscript to, to its conclusion. And almost at the same time, Rav Zusha stands up, and he says, this is incredible! I've never seen such a great work. I must show my friend, Rabbi Hudalev Akayim, across town. He takes the manuscript, he walks out, whether he noticed that it was at 2 a.m., I don't know what it was or not, he starts running across town because he's literally on fire with enthusiasm from this manuscript. But about the same time, Rabbi Hudalev Akayim also finishes the manuscript, he jumps up. This is incredible. What my friend of Shneer Zalman managed to accomplish is completely, completely insane. He stands up on, in fi- on fire as well. He goes out of his house and he starts running down the streets. He wants to go to his friend, Rav Zusha, on the other side of town to show him this incredible manuscript. The story was related by the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe and he describes that they're both running across town in the middle of town there's a bridge that goes over a river. And they both met on the river. And they both saw each other holding a manuscript. They both understood that they, they were reading the same thing. And they danced and danced out of excitement on this bridge. And the way he describes it is, the entire town of Anipal was completely engulfed in fire. That's the image. Completely engulfed in fire from the enthusiasm of these two individuals. What was so great about these manuscripts? In fact, there's a third friend in the town of Baitachov 
which is also in the Ukraine. And this friend, Rabbi Levi Yitzhak, was also a friend of Rabbi Shneur Zalman, and also Rabbi Zusha, and also Rabbi Hodlein Bakoyen. He also got a messenger, and also got the manuscript, and he also read it. When he finished reading it, he exclaimed like this, and the words that came out of his mouth stay with us for generations. He says, my friend Rabbi Shneur Zalman managed to put an enormous God into a teeny book, something that no one else was able to accomplish. This manuscript is the manuscript before the publishing of the Tanya, which Rav Shneur Zalman, who was the author of the Tanya, wanted his friends to give um, their, their, their feedback on. But what is so great about the Tanya? I want to say that this book, there's no book like it ever. Even in the Torah world, there's no book like it ever. And as I, as I mentioned before in another class, I think this is the only book that exists that I know of, that as we get further and further from its authorship, it becomes more and more relevant. Usually that's not the way. Usually a book, the more, you know, further away it gets from the authorship, either it gets completely uprooted by another book or it gets irrelevant with the times, times change. But Tanya is a book that becomes more and more relevant as the, as the generations, as the years go by. And today I'm going to attempt to try to explain why that is. And really the story of the Tanya starts not in 17... Um, the, the printing of the Tanya was in 1796. Not in the year 1796. The really the story of Tanya starts from the story of creation. And here is going to be your Chassidus 101. Okay? The backstory of the Tanya. So put your seatbelts on, get ready, hands and feet in the car at all times, please, ladies and gentlemen. I'm going to give you the backstory of the Tanya because it doesn't come out randomly. It's not written randomly. The Rosh Hashanah to write a book. It's not random. He is coming after a little bit of a history, which may be not well known. There's a little bit of a history that makes this the writing of the Tanya, when it was written, and it, it, it all comes together at that point in 1796. What's the history? So like this. The creation of the world, there's one observation that you don't even need to learn Kabbalah for, you don't need to learn Hasidus for. There's one observation you can make about the creation of the world, which tells you a little bit about the nature of creation, which also will inform the purpose of creation. One observation that you can make is, is that the entire universe, all of existence, is built on opposites. Did you notice this? It's built on opposites, right? There's day and night, there's man, there's woman, there's do, there's plan. There's comfortabilities, uncomfortabilities. There's, there's, there's um, ambition, and then there's stability. There's um, strictness, there's judgment, right? There's, uh, there's, there's light and dark. There's old and new. There's water and land. There's love and hate. There's warm and cold. Up, yeah, um, warm and cold. There's up and down. There's time and space. There's teach and learn. There's um, think and there's emotions. You, everything. In this universe, literally everything has its opposite. And this opposite, by the way, whether we know it or not, it actually helps us define things. Because more often than not, definitions of, of elements are in contrast to their opposites, right? They're in contrast. On every level of creation, at every level of consciousness, at every level, whether in the, whether spirituality, physicality itself is two opposites. And every level is opposite. Why is that? So Kabbalah explains like this. That God is one. There's no opposite than God. He's just the one. 
the Kabbalah explains that Hashem has two powers, two general powers that are both on equal keel. The power of unlimitedness and the power of limitedness. According to Kabbalah, the power of unlimitedness and the power of limitedness are both are both the same in, in, in their in their in their greatness. We think that unlimited is amazing. Limited, we're all limited. But that's only because Hashem created us limited. But in tr- before all creation, there's what the Kabbalah calls the unlimitedness, the limitedness and unlimitedness. These two powers are were used like two tools in the creation, and every single thing in creation is gonna reflect that. And therefore, you have everything in creation um, 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 built on opposites. What's the purpose? The purpose, we're told, is to try to bring existence back to its former state in the oneness of Hashem before these two branches branched out. So the goal, the purpose of our life is to bridge the opposites. It's to bridge the opposites. That's why marriage, for example, is always an amazing metaphor for the purpose of, purpose of the world. Marriage, you know, marriage is a metaphor that's used for our relationship with Hashem, our relationship with, um, with, with Avoida, the, the work we're supposed to do, Torah Mitzvah. Marriage is always a, a very good metaphor. Why? Because marriage is seen in, in, a, in, a, in a very overt way, uh, uh, the, the bridging of opposites, right? And it's not easy, right? It's a very hard thing to do because bridging opposites is not easy. And you know what? Doing mitzvahs, when you do a mitzvah, you're bridging the opposites as well. You're taking a physical object, you're infusing it with spirituality, you're bridging opposites. The bridge between the opposites is hard because the creation was, 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 was placed status quo that they're opposites and they remain opposites. Our job is to bridge the opposites. Okay? That is basically, in, in just five minutes, if you need an explanation, the purpose of all creation, to bridge the opposites. Who is supposed to do the bridging? It's men. Why? Why are, the, why are the human beings, what is it in the human being that they have that power to bridge the opposites? So I'll tell you, if you look at the creation story, if you look at Chomish, the creation story, man was created differently than every other creation. And according to Kabbalah, this is very significant. Every single creation, there were seven days of creation, every creation was, 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 on, was, was given a certain day, right? every group of creation was given a certain day to, to, be, to, be, to be created. Every creation was created in a moment, even less than a moment, just in a moment. Like, let's say the cow. A cow was created, it was a cow. A rock, it was a rock. A tree is a tree. Even though every single creation has its frame, its physicality, and also has a spirituality to it. According to Kabbalah, every single creation has its spirituality, even, even a rock. A rock is infused with its purpose, with its, um, with its existence. But a rock was created like a rock. The only thing, the only creation that was created in two steps, not in a moment, was, was a person. As the Chumash tells us, a person was created first a body out of all the, the mud, earth from all over the world, was created into a body. And then in the second step, Hashem infused the body with a soul. That's the only, only creation built on two steps. Why? The reason is, is because Hashem wanted an entity in His creation that both encompasses both opposites in one, in order for this unique creation that has two opposites in one, a body and soul into one entity, to have the power to bridge everything else with its, with its divine purpose. So, the re, the, the, for example, free choice. This is the discussion of free choice, you know, that we all are endowed with. 
free choices as we have and not other creations comes because we have a neshama. We're given a divine neshama. The neshama in its pure state without a soul, as we're told, we're going to learn in Tanya, is a piece of Hashem, literally. It's, the, it's divine. The body is as physical as any other creation. It's the two together that make this unique fusion, opposites together, that gives the power that we could bridge these opposites all over the universe as well. You had a question? The infinite and the finite, exactly. The infinite is a soul in the finite. These two together. There is, um, there is um, an interesting medrash, which I mentioned, about um, Rabbi Akiva, one of the greatest sages in the, in the Talmud, in the, in the Mishnah. Rabbi Akiva was a leader of his generation, but you know, as he, he started, he, the famous story is that he only started learning Torah at the age of 40. He didn't even know Aleph Beis till the age of 40. Age of 40, he started learning Aleph Beis. He became great, self-made greatness. He wasn't born into, into greatness at all. Um, and he lived to 120. He's one of those few tzaddikim, one of the few righteous people, literally lived to 120 day to day, like Moshe Rabbeinu. Um, later on in his life, he was literally the soul. He was the, you know, the leader. He was the, the recognized leader. Um, but, but as his life went on, the political situation of the people in Eretz Yisrael, of the Jews in, in, in Israel at the time, deteriorated and deteriorated more and more. By the time he was already an old man, they were dealing with a very, very hard political situation where the Roman emperor had a governor assigned by the emperor, a non-Jew, to control the land, and the Jews had no autonomy whatsoever. Now, this non-Jew was a complete Russia. Um, his name, I know his name is in, in, in English, is, um, is known as, as Rufus. But in, in, um, in, in Hebrew, his real name is Turnus Rufus. Turnus Rufus. Turnus Rufus. Um, and he was just a really, really harsh governor. One thing he didn't understand was any of the mitzvahs. And he just couldn't stand it. So he literally made the Jews crazy about, it, about, 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 uh, about every mitzvah. Shabbos, he couldn't handle. What is this? We work. What is this? Every seven days is a rest. You know, obviously he didn't see the American society, you know, American culture where there's like, you know, we only work like, we only work one day a week. But, uh, but, um, 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 all the major mitzvahs, he hated so much that he eventually started canceling them. He started actually decreeing against them, which was, which was enormously, enormously, um, problematic for the Jewish people because it became illegal and, and, Back in the day, it was basically capital punishment for everything. So it was a very, very hard time, and he was a very hated, obviously, obviously hated individual, until one day the emperor was coming through Eretz Yisrael. The emperor came, the Jews sent a delegation to petition that he replace his governor. He's making all these decrees for no reason. So we learn in the, in the, the Medrash tells us a very fascinating, a fascinating encounter, because the emperor decided, he's like, you know what? We're going to actually hold a hearing. We'll call the Jews, the Senate representative, we'll call the governor and let them debate before me and we'll see who's, um, who I should decide. Should I change the governor? Should I not change the governor? And so they sent Rabbi Akiva. So it was a great debate between Turnus Rufus and Rabbi Akiva in front of the emperor. And this debate is recorded in the, in the Medrash. So some interesting things about the debate were, he said, how come, how come your God hates us so much, us idol worshipers? He says, you're in your Torah, the biggest hate Hashem has is for idol worshippers. 
Oh, I so much. So uh, Rabbi Kiva said, I respectfully ask that uh, I be able to answer this tomorrow. Okay, the emperor says, no problem. Tomorrow the debate resumes. He says, Rabbi Kiva, do you have an answer to his, to his, uh, to his question? So Rabbi Kiva says, actually, instead of an answer, I'll just tell you about a dream I had last night. Oh, what was your dream? He said, I had a dream that there was two dogs. One was named Rufus, one was named Rufina. Two dogs, his name and his wife's name. He got so so mad. He turns to the emperor, he says, that's all the Jews could think about and dream about is that me and my wife are dogs. See how low these people are. Shabbat Kiva says, excuse me, sir. What's the difference between you and a dog? You eat, he eats. You sleep, the dog sleeps. You walk, the dog walks. What's the difference? And yet you become so incensed, so angry, that I put your name on a dog. Just your name. I called the dog your name. You get so, you get so, so angry, even though it was really the difference between you. Should Hashem not become angry that you take his name and put it on a piece of stone? That was one answer. Another uh, interesting, um, interesting, uh, um, uh, um, another interesting question. He said, how come the Jews have Shabbos? He was very upset with Shabbos. Couldn't handle Shabbos. What is this? Why is Shabbos a special day? I look outside, it looks the same as, as Monday, it looks the same as Tuesday. You're making it as if it's a special day. He says, excuse me, governor, why are you the ruler of the land? Right? Why are you the ruler of the land? He says, the king appointed me. So he said, the king, Hashem, appointed this day. He used always these type of tactics. So the one piece of the debate I want to highlight is where he asked Rabbi Kiva, why is it that you, on the eighth day, take a good, healthy baby boy and give him a brismillah? If Hashem created the baby boy that way, obviously he wanted it that way. Why are you perfecting God's work if you believe this is God's work? Why are you perfecting God's work? So Rabbi Kiva answered, why did Hashem not just give, why, why did Hashem not give us bread? Instead, he gave wheat, water, and we have to make the bread, right? If, 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 if Hashem wants to feed us, if bread is the sustenance of the human, of the human beings, Hashem should give us bread. Bread should grow. Why? Because Hashem created the world imperfect. He created that way that we should give our contribution. And the reason why I want to highlight this is because the human being was created in this way of a body and soul together, this fusion, because Hashem created his creation imperfect, imperfection meaning that there's opposites. And the opposites cannot be bridged until the human being comes and bridges them. So it's actually, we are supposed to do God's work in bridging the two opposites. What happens is, is that man needs to know, how do I bridge the two opposites? How do I bridge them? Right? So in the year of um, um, 2448 since the creation, a great event happens where Hashem gives the human being actual instruction how to bridge these two opposites. We know this as Matan Torah, the giving of the Torah. What happened at Matan Torah? I'm going to give you the Hasidic view of Matan Torah. We know what happened at, the Har- at Har Sinai, at Mount Sinai, the giving of the Torah was Hashem gave us the 613 commandments, right? But something else happened. Something else happened. Not only did Hashem give the instruction to the Jews, He also gave them the empowerment to fulfill it. And I'll explain. Until the giving of the Torah, the opposites in the world were so extreme that they were almost unbridgeable. As the Medrash recounts, there was a decree. He uses this uh, analogy of a decree, that the, like a king makes a decree, that the heavens should remain the heavens and the earth should remain the earth. The heavens and earth should never merge. When, I, when Hashem gave the Torah, and the words of the Medrash, He annulled the decree. What does that mean? 
It means that the empowerment to infuse opposites was given to the Jewish people. Now you may, you may, you may wonder that if Torah, if the world, the universe is created on opposites, the Torah itself also has opposites. Human being has two, has two parts to it, a body and soul. It happens to be that the Torah itself also has a body and soul. It's also maybe not well known. The body and soul of the Torah is recounted in Kabbalah. It's called the body of the Torah and the soul of the Torah, literally like a person. The, the Torah was given two elements, the body of the Torah, the soul of the Torah. In the Kabbalistic language, Gufa Deiraisa, Nishmas Deiraisa. The body of the Torah and the soul of the Torah. But there are three main differences between the body of the Torah and the soul of the Torah. What are the three main differences? Difference number one, the body of the Torah was taught to every single member of the Jewish people the moment it was given to Moshe Rabbeinu. Maimonides actually recounts what happened. He says every single person learned every single piece of the Torah four times. Right? Like, like if you want, this class we could repeat four times. No, but, but you can imagine, Moshe Rabbeinu got the revelation from Hashem, the mitzvah. Throughout the 40 years, he kept on getting more and more mitzvahs. Got the mitzvah. And he taught it to his brother Aaron. Then his, his brother's sons came into the room and he taught it again to Aaron and his sons. Then the elders came into the room and Moshe taught it to Aaron, his sons and the elders. So the elders heard it once, Aaron's sons heard it twice. Aaron heard it three times and Moshe heard it from Hashem and he already repeated it three times. Then all the Jewish people were invited. Moshe Rabbeinu taught it another time. So Aaron heard it four times, his sons three times, the elders two times, and the Jewish people one time, and then Moshe would leave. Aaron would take the podium, and he would repeat what he heard four times. And so his sons heard it four times, and the elders heard it three times, and the Jewish people heard it two times. Then Aaron would leave, and his sons would take the podium, and they would repeat it. And then his sons would leave, the elders would take the podium, and they would repeat it until every single member of the Jewish people heard it four times. And then from that day on, until the next time they have to assemble, they would all discuss it between them and, 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 and review and review and review how to do this particular mitzvah with all its ramifications, with all its halachas, with all its laws. And then if they had a question, they went to Moshe Rabbeinu. And it was Moshe Rabbeinu's father-in-law, as we learned in Chumash, who told him, you know, instead of everyone coming to you with questions, why don't you make rabbis and elders accept, you know, the whole hierarchy of, to help you out answering the question. That was all the body of Torah. Every single person learned the body of Torah. The soul of Torah was only taught to a select few. It wasn't given to everybody. Only a select few elite Jewish people were given the secrets. They became became known as the secrets of Torah. Why the secrets of Torah? Because it was only to select few. And not only was it to select few, another difference between the body of Torah and 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 the soul of Torah, the body of Torah was transmitted orally. They all heard all this information. They reviewed it together. They, maybe they wrote notes to each, you know, notes to themselves. But the next generation, when the kids grew up and they had to teach them the Torah, it was all orally. But it didn't last. Throughout the generations, eventually the Mishnah was written, the Gemara was written, books were written, Maimonides, the codes of Jewish law. If you look at a Jewish library, it's full stock, full of written literature. The body of Torah was eventually written down. But the soul of Torah remained, for most of history, only oral. And that's why the soul of Torah got its nickname, Kabbalah. Because Kabbalah means receive. Because it was known, not only was a select few individuals who were learning Kabbalah, but also it was in a way of you have to receive it from a teacher to a student, from a teacher to a student. And that was retained in its purity. 
Whereas the body of Torah, which encompasses all the halachas, all the laws, you could open a book and also learn. You need a teacher to teach you how to learn, but you could open a book and learn. Kabbalah would have to be transmitted from a teacher. And the third difference is in substance. That the body of Torah speaks to the body of the person. The soul of Torah speaks to the soul of the person. The body of Torah teaches you what to do, literally. How to build a sukkah, how to blow a shofar, how to set up a shul, how to teach a class. There's halachas for everything. How to put your shoes on. You know that there's halachas how to put your shoes on, the right one before the left one. How literally to act. But the soul of Torah, the soul of Torah speaks to the soul of a person. It's not about action. It's about the soul of a person. So in substance, they were very, very different. Many, 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 many years later came along the Arizal. The Arizal, Rabbi Yitzchak Ashkenazi, Rabbi Yitzchak Luria Ashkenazi was one of the, was, was the greatest Kabbalist we had in history. I'm sure everyone's nodding. You know about the Arizal. In fact, the Arizal is so famous that it is almost infathomable to, to, to understand that the Arizal was only a teacher, a Rebbe, for two years. Only two years. He passed away at the young age of 38. This was in the 1500s in Tzvat in Israel. And Arizal, he was the most instrumental in changing up the, the status quo here. He changed that the soul of Torah, the Shema Sederaisa, should be A, more accessible, and B, a little less secret. And therefore, the writing down of Kabbalah, mostly, generally, starts from Arizal. Arizal is the one who said the famous line, he says, Mitzvah lefarsam zaysa Torah. Now, in this generation, it is actually a commandment, a mitzvah, to spread the soul of Torah. And the learning of Kabbalah became a lot more prevalent in the Jewish people. A few hundred years later, we have another big epoch in our history. And that is the coming of the Baal Shem Tov. Baal Shem Tov, he started what's called Hasidus. But this is the first time in history Listen to this carefully, because this gives you an, an understanding of, of Tanya that's going to take you through our entire journey of Tanya. It's the first time in history that the soul and the body of Torah start having an overt and very tangible bridge created. If the purpose of creation is to bridge the two opposites, Torah is not an exclusion. Throughout history, Torah was two branches. There was a soul of Torah, the body of Torah. They did not come together. They were not fused together until comes the Baal Shem Tov, and the Baal Shem Tov says, actually, we have to start fusing it. But the fusion only comes to its ultimate with the Tanya. Let me explain how that works. Listen. Before the Baal Shem Tov, the big, big, big contribution of the Baal Shem Tov to, to the world, before the Baal Shem Tov and after the Baal Shem Tov could be defined in the following way. Before the Baal Shem Tov, what was more dominant in Jewish thought and Jewish practice, both was the body. And because that was like that, we defined, not even subconsciously, but consciously, we actually taught it this way. Torah was taught this way. We defined a connection to Hashem as something to attain. Something you gotta attain, like a degree in university, right? You got, you come into university, come in, you don't know, the subject matter, you learn, you spend four years, eight years, whatever it may be, and you attain a degree because you attain all this knowledge. It's something you have to build up and attain. 
When you first enter the classroom, the first, on the first day, you're nothing. You're, you're, you're by point A. You have nothing to you. In order to get to point B with everything, you got to work in progression. What happens to the student who's progressing towards a degree? As he gains more and more knowledge and he gets closer and closer to attaining his degree, he gets further and further from point A, right? He's less and less of an ignoramus and he's more and more of a knowledgeable person in this field. And so therefore, if you apply this to connection to Hashem, what happens? The connection to Hashem, our connection to Hashem is something you have to attain. Some people are standing by A, some people are standing by B. What happened is that the society of the Jewish people deteriorated into hierarchy and classes like we can't even imagine today like, like it was. You, can you imagine that in, 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 the, in the shtetls of, of Poland and Ukraine, Eastern Europe, there were actually separate shoals for the big Torah scholars and for the, for the woodchoppers. Separate shoals, that's how much it was. Because the prevalent thinking, the ideology was, is that the more Torah you know, the more close you are to Hashem. The less Torah you know, the further you are from Hashem. There's point A, there's point B. Some people on the ladder are closer to B. Some people are closer to A. If you're closer to B, obviously you're more special. The class divide was phenomenal. You can't even imagine the disrespect that the Torah scholars sometimes had for the, for the, for the it's, it's recorded, we have stories of this. And we can't even, we can't even like, uh, like imagine that a Torah scholar would do that. But you know what? If you have that ideology, it, 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 you begin to understand how that could happen. Because if you are for years and years, actually more special than another person, then he's second-class citizen. The Baal Shem Tov flipped it on his head. He said, no, I'm going to change the ideology of Judaism forever. I'm going to make the soul more prominent. And I'm going to say like this, your connection to Hashem is not something you attain, it's something you reveal. What's the difference between attain and reveal? Attainment means you have point A, point B. You have to get more to B in order to attain it. Reveal means there's only one point. There's only A. You have it already. You just have to reveal it. Oh, that flipped it on his head. Because you know why? Sometimes a person who learned less Torah was more closer to revealing their neshama, revealing their connection to Hashem, than a person who knew a lot of Torah. Because a person who knew a lot of Torah, he could get a little bit uh, haughty. I learned so much Torah. And that covered up his neshama. So the Baal Shem Tov, said the, 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 the way that we're going to have Judaism from now on is not attainment, connection to attainment, it's revealment. It's revealing. What happened was he made the neshama more prominent. The neshama, the forgotten neshama, both of the Jewish world and also the individual people became more prominent. But it wasn't until two generations later, Rabbi Shneer Zalman of Liadi, with the bridge between the body and soul, came to its ultimate. What happened was that the Baal Shem Tov and his students took their ideology of Neshama, Neshama you know, central, to, to the extreme. They said, all you need to do is reveal your Neshama. If you reveal your Neshama, you have a connection to Hashem. How does someone reveal their Neshama? How does someone reveal their Neshama? Where you know, we eat, we sleep, we do so much physical things, our Neshama is kind of hidden. Very simple. I'll tell you how to reveal your Neshama. Make sure to find someone whose neshama is already revealed. Hang around them, connect with them, follow them, and you will be inspired to reveal your neshama as well. And therefore comes the great, great um, emphasis in Hasidic thought on the Rebbe. That's where the Rebbe gets so much emphasis, much more than before Hasidic thought. 
before Chassidus was revealed, a rabbi, a teacher, you, you, you learn Torah from. Right? You learn Torah from the teacher and you respect them. They became, they're obviously the, you know, uh, the respectable people of town is the rabbi. Fine. But a Rebbe is a whole nother, a whole nother nature. It's not a person you just learn Torah from. It's a person you connect yourself to in, 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 in every fiber of your being because he's a person, he's a tzaddik, his neshama is, is so revealed. If you want to reveal your neshama, just be connected to him. Be connected to him, meaning, meaning ask him advice. Go and spend the holidays with him. Go and spend Shabbos with him. Seeing the, 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 if you see in big Hasidic uh, um, circles, there's a great emphasis on the tish, tish meaning a table, right? There's a big tish. Anyone here was by a tish? So it, it, the Rebbe sits at the front and they sing the gunim, they sing songs. The Rebbe gives out food. He actually gives out food because any connection you want to get to the Rebbe, you to, to, to reveal your neshama. Nowadays, this is like I'm saying, we, back in the day, we were talking about a whole class of, of, of top class tzaddikim. Nowadays, you go to a tish, it's kind of like the remnants of what we had back then. You know, unfortunately, we, you know, our, our, our generation is not as worthy, but we had great tzaddikim where, where the emphasis was on connect yourself to our Rebbe. Came Rabbi Shneir Zalman of Le'adi, who was the student of the student of the Bashanta, and he brought the fusion between body and soul to its ultimate. He said, no, Judaism is about both. It's about revealment and attainment. How? You're the revelation you are going to attain on your own. The revelation itself, you got to attain on your own. Rabbi Shneur Zalman, help us out. How do we reveal our neshama? It's not just an easy thing. I'm going to write for you a book. And this book is going to teach you how you on your own, with the guidance of a rabbi, yes, the guidance, but you on your own are going to be able to reveal your neshama on your own. He brought the fusion of both opposites into one. This book is incredible because it brings the opposites to one. It's the first time we have an ultimate, overt, real, real example of where both sides of Torah come into a fusion. When we learn Torah, when we learn Tanya, you're going to notice there's a great emphasis put on the neshama of Torah and on the body of Torah. Not only the neshama of Torah, he actually gives you a program of how to, how to is a body, is a bodily thing, right? Actually how to use your body to reveal your neshama. He uses both. They come into a fusion. In the, in the pre-Rabbi Rabbi Schneer Zalman um, times, the brain and intellect and knowledge was kind of uh, looked down upon, let's put it that way. Because if you need to reveal your neshama, what's the biggest obstacle to your neshama? Your brain. Your brain's cold, calculated, it's not spiritual, right? And how many people left the ways of Torah in the, in the times of the Enlightenment? Because it was all about brain, and the brain was very dangerous. The brain was very dangerous. That's how they looked at it. Comes with Shinerazam and says, the brain's not dangerous. The brain is the biggest gift Hashem gave to you. It's through the brain that you're going to be able to reveal your neshama. And by the way, the students of the Baal Shem Tov actually were in great, were, were many antagon, antagonists, very antagonistic to Rav Shinerazam's path. He said, you're taking our way of life in the Baal Shem Tov, you're throwing it in the garbage. That's what they claimed. He claimed no. I'm the one who actually understands the depth of the Hashem uh, Torah. What he really wanted. What he really wanted was, is that your brain is not an obstacle, but it's the greatest tool to reveal your neshama. And therefore, this, um, the, the, the Tanya, I think a lot of times is mistaken as a, as, a, as a philosophy book or a psychology book. Why? Because you, sometimes you can conflate the two because you think, because it talks a lot to the brain. The Tanya has a belief that if you have a way to train your brain or a certain way to think, it will affect your emotions and your actions. Your brain is what starts the whole process within your body. 
Therefore, it's conflated with philosophy or, 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 or psychology, either one. Some chapters seem more like this, and chapters seem more like that. But the truth is, there's none of them. We're talking about purpose. It's real purpose here. The Tanya is the, the guidebook of how a person could fuse his, his own body and soul, and therefore fuse also opposites in the world. It's the guidebook for this great fusion, starting with the Tanya itself. Just like a person was put into this earth, and he is given the empowerment to do the fusion because he's two opposites, the Tanya itself is the ultimate guidebook because it itself has these two, the fusion of the opposites. Um, um, I'm, I'm just going to bring out um, one more point, which I feel is going to be fascinating for you to hear. The Rebbe actually points out that you see societal trends and scientific trends throughout the ages that are all heading towards what he, what he called the great unification. Okay? In the scientific world and the, and the Torah world, you get two examples and actually contemporary times, two examples of how um, the times have changed. In, in the scientific world, as I've explained, um, there was great emphasis, starting from Newton, right, the physics and everything, there's great emphasis in trying to understand and define as many laws of nature as we can. As many laws of nature as we can. And in a way, it was a very fragmented way of approach, very fragmented approach, very primitive, but that's, that was the science at the time. I mean, we know that the, in, 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 in just, what was it, in the past 150 years, 200 years, they, 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 they you know, there was like this emphasis to, 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 to try to find as many minerals as we can and name them, you know? You know, we try to find as many, as many um, rules or minerals in the world and name them and give labels to them and so we can have some sort of framework to work with. But starting from Albert Einstein and his, his time, science switches. We're actually very, very, very hungry to find a unifying theory to everything. It becomes an obsession of science, physics, you see this very clearly. We don't want to know all the rules of, of, of nature. We want to find one rule that explains everything, right? We want to find that one atom that's in everything. We want to find, and then that's not enough. We want to go deeper and deeper in quantum physics. We go deeper and deeper because it, it's string theory, I'm sure you've heard of, and, and all these different theories, there's a drive to try to find the single one theory that answers everything. We see that science itself turns into this unification because as we come closer and closer to Mashiach's times, which that's going to be the ultimate unification, the Mashiach's times when we're going to come back to a state of oneness with Hashem, where the two branches of limitedness, limitedness and unlimitedness are no longer going to be seen as opposites, but the fusion of one whole coming from the same source, as we get closer to that time, even in the world of science, you see how it's changing the entire mindset. And in the world of Torah also, the Rebbe pointed out, who was a contemporary to Albert Einstein, was a man named the Rogachev Ergoyen, the great genius of Rogachev, from the town of Rogachev. This person, actually, when the Rebbe was very young, was young as a teenager, had a correspondence with him. In the Rebbe's view, the Rogachev was a school of thought, a new, a new mindset of learning Torah that never was before. The Rebbe's view that was a prelude to Mashiach's time, such a, such a, such a learning. And in fact, I heard this from my teachers, is that if you look in the Rebbe's own Torah and the, Rebbe, the way the Rebbe develops an idea and the Parsha and the Gemara, whatever it may be, it's very much along the lines of this school of thought. What's the school of thought? Before the Ragachavar in the Yeshiva world, in the, in the Torah world, a great emphasis was made on something called Chakira. Chakira means, you know, 
dividing, to, to defining and dividing, which is actually the same thing. You know, you gotta you gotta define things against other things. You know, you compare two laws against each other and you find the differences between them. You compare two scenarios against each other and you find the differences between them. And it's all about shelving different laws and different and different theories and different ideas and, and hierarchy and trying to come up with structures of understanding. Comes the Raghachavar and you see the way he learns the Torah. The Raghachavar is obsessed with finding one single unified theory for everything in Torah. An incredible, incredible work that uh, a, a lay person, even the great, great scholar, is very hard to read his book. There's actually books being written on how to just interpret his words. Everything was written in shorthand. But if you will open a book of the Raghachavar Gaon, you literally see quoting right? Hundreds of sources of non-connected areas of Torah at all. And he connects them with one single theory that, 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 that's, that's literally incredible. Literally like, like, like it's mind-boggling. And you see that he was like trying to find, you know, like one unified theory. I think, uh, I, I don't know this, I never verified this, but someone said he once heard that the, that, that the gun once said that, that where he's holding now in his thought process, there's seven there's seven ideas that the whole Torah is, uh, you know, uh, based on. All the laws in Torah. We're talking about like, we're talking about literally hundreds of thousands of different laws that are not connected. And all areas of life, different ideas. And you find, and that was a, a trend also in Torah for, the unif for a unification. In the Rebbe's Torah, you see this as well. You see the Rebbe takes one talk, which we call a sikha, okay? Quoting from hundreds of sources, all one idea. And you know what? He has an idea, a, a philosophical idea, and a lesson, a takeaway lesson, and a piece of, 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 of Gemara, and a piece of Kabbalah, and everything in one, and everything makes sense, and you see how the Torah is all coming from one God. Such a thing is a very contemporary thing. And that why? Because we're all, we're coming towards the great unification of Mashiach's time. So Tanya is split into, into five parts. The five parts of Tanya are, the first part of Tanya is called Lekutei Amorim, which is literally, the collection of sayings in Rabbi Shneir Zalman's great, great humility. He says, ah, I didn't write a book. I just collected some ideas. I just, in, in, in his introduction, he writes, this is a collection of ideas I got from my teachers, you know, and his great humility. But that is the first part of Tanya, and that is about our avoida, which means our work as Jews, our purpose as Jews. Um, the second part of Tanya is called Shar HaYichud Vahamuna, which is which means the, 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 the gate of, 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 of unification and, 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 and faith. And that is the intellectual part of Tanya. That gives you the intellectual framework of how to understand the universe and Hashem. The third part of Tanya is the part called the Gersh Tshuva Tshuva, which we learned before, which is a whole nother stream in its own right in Judaism, Tshuva. And then the other two parts of Tanya, the five parts of Tanya, the other two parts of Tanya are letters in different areas in life, mostly on the giving of Pistaka, that Rabbi Shneir Zalman penned to his own students throughout his life that were collected and put into the book as well. In the, in, 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 uh, in amongst the Chassidim, we say Tanya is like the Chumash of Chassidim for, for a few reasons. The main reason is in concept because every, every, uh, right now, we talked about the great library of the, of the body of Torah, right? We talked about the great library. By the time we, right now, the soul of Torah has almost a rival library. Just the Rebbe's Torah. I'm just saying, just the Rebbe's Torah, we're talking about over 300 books. Okay? And all the Rebbe's of Chabad, we're talking about thousands and thousands of books, but everything is sourced in the Tanya. Everything is based on the Tanya. Um, so, so just like a Chomish, everything in Torah is based on the Chomish, so it's called Chomish. But another 
Another reason is because just like Chumash has five parts, the Tanya has five parts. Just like Chumash does not have any vowels, any Nakudis written in it, the Tanya also has no vowels and no Nakudis written in it. And in fact, the grandson of Shem Zalman, the story goes, is that he thought, you know what, I actually want to put Nakudis in the Tanya. I want to make vowels, vowels, because it's hard to read for people who are uninitiated. I want to actually put the vowels, the Hebrew vowels, inside the text. And he had a dream where his grandfather came to him in a dream. His grandfather already passed away. He says, don't touch it. Because just like Bechomish has no vowels, which leaves open different ways to interpret the, the wording, Tanya as well. If you're going to start putting punctuation and vowels, it's going to limit it. There's many different ways to understand the text. Um, so another, another reason why it's like Bechomish. Uh, also, the, 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 the great precision in the wording. The great precision in the wording. We know that Torah, one letter can teach us a lot. The great precision in the wording we, a story that's recorded from the brother of Shemir Zalman. The brother, his own brother, was a great going to Torah. Once saw him deep, deep, deep in thought. And he asked him, my brother, his older brother, he says, my older brother, he says, what are you thinking about? He said, I'm in the middle of writing. And he was writing to Tanya. And he said, I'm not sure if I should put this one letter above in a certain place in Tanya where it says v'chulu, which means etc. So sometimes you see in Tanya it says chulu without the vav, chulu, etc. Something with the vav, which means and etc. What's the difference? One is saying, um, I'm, I'm not going to add any more information because it's not relevant, etc. You know, find out more if you want, but I can't add it here because it's not so relevant. Vichulu and etc. with the vav means that, that there's more information I can't put in here because of lack of space, but it is relevant, you know? So there's a big difference here. And he said, I spent six weeks already contemplating on this. Six weeks. And he says, every time I write a word, I go through the entire Tanya in my, in my mind to see if this, if this actually. Now, I want to just tell you, it took Rabbi Shneir Zalman, he wrote the Code of Jewish Law. He wrote a contemporary Code of Jewish Law, Shulchan Aruch, called Shulchan Aruch Arav. It took him three years. A Code of Jewish Law, okay, you can imagine, like the Shulchan Aruch, three years. The Tanya took him 20. Okay, so we're talking about a, immense, immense precision. This is the backstory of the Tanya. Um, God willing, next week, I'm going to give you one class, an overview of the Tanya, the actual Tanya, in one class. Hopefully we'll do the entire Tanya in an hour. So you get an, like a, an actual overview of all the chapters. And then we're going to do every chapter another class. I'll give you um, an overview of those chapters. But this is called Tanya Life. And as the people here who come before, we know that until now is the Tanya part, now is the life part. In Tanya Life, what I like to do is take from the lesson that we spoke about now, and try to think um, of three general areas in life where we can learn a lesson, an actual takeaway. So I'll, I'll, I'll start. In the past, we did writing, but I don't have the, the cards here. I'll start. I'm going to tell you three takeaways that, from this lesson, and then we'll go around the table and people can share. And in the realm of our relationship with Hashem, in the realm of our relationship with others, and in the realm of relationship with myself. Because in Tanya, you have all of that. Every piece of wisdom in Tanya you can use with relationship with Hashem, which is actually its central purpose, obviously. But then a relationship with others is just as central, just as important. And then your relationship with yourself is, is just as important as well, because they're all part of life. So when I was preparing for this class, I was thinking, you know, I like to get very, um, in, in, you know, specific, very specific. Um, so in relationship with Hashem, what I wrote down here is that as we discussed, um, the difference between meaning and purpose, one thing that I take away from that is spirituality is not necessarily godly, which it's always conflated. I like asking people, you know, coming from, uh, from, from learning this, I always ask people, what's closer to Hashem, spiritual or physical? What's closer to Hashem? 
So everyone says, spiritual. I answer, no, absolutely not. They're equally as close to Hashem, spiritual and physical. Hashem is beyond spiritual. You understand? In, in fact, in Hasidic thought, it could be that physical is more close to Hashem. We won't get into that now. But the point is that there's a lot of spiritual components in our experience and a lot of borrowed spirituality from other sources, from other, not even just religions, but from other ways of thinking. Having meaning in your life is a spiritual thing, but having purpose in your life is, is divine. That is godly. So it's very important not to conflate the two. Purpose means it, needs, it, it requires a little bit of humility and also uncomfortability. You need to listen to what Hashem wants from you instead of just finding meaning and, and, and feeling good, um, um, which we all spiritually want to do, but not necessarily is that um, godly. In relationship with others, this is what I thought. This is a thought that I had. And that is the three big um, eras in our history where we said where the, the, the body of Torah was dominant, the body of Torah was dominant, and then came the Baal Shem Tov and made the soul dominant. And then Rabbi Shneur Zalman, the, the Alter Rebbe, who fused them, the two together, I believe in our relationship with others is also three general ways that people take it. And we should strive for the third. The first one is we view each other as bodies. You're a body, I'm a body. And if that's all we see, so the way a courteous person has a relationship with another, you have a lot of respect. But respect also implies distance. You know, you have your space, I have my space. And there's, it's hard to be empathetic. It's hard to be, you know, respect itself has a lot of value. But it's not what, when we call for obviously Yisrael, that's not what obviously Yisrael is all about. You know, obviously Yisrael needs to go beyond. So the second stage is when we're going to learn a little tiny about obviously Yisrael, is, is, is trying to get the other person's soul to be more dominant. Look at him as a soul. They're not a body, they're a soul. They're not a body with a soul, they're a soul with a body, right? And when you see a person, another person with a soul, then you're able to take away any, you know, trappings around the other person that may keep a little distance, you know, the person's a little bit annoying and a little bit different than me and a different race than me and a different personality than me, and right? That's all body stuff. And the soul were the same. It's easy to have obviously stroll. But an even deeper obviously stroll uh, is, 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 um, is when you, the body and the soul are, are, are fused. The difference between Avis Yisrael and Achtos Yisrael. According to the Rebbe, Avis Yisrael, which means the love of a fellow Jew, is great. But Achtos Yisrael, which is unity, is even greater. Because it, you want, you want that your Avis Yisrael should be so deep that not only do you see the other person as a soul and therefore you look away at all their failings, you want to start appreciating them as a person in body as well. You really want to have that relationship with them. That's what we should strive for. If you have a very, very healthy look at another person in soul, eventually it will spill over and you'll be able to handle, they, they, they stop being so annoying, they stop being so different, and you can actually have true unity with them. In relation with myself, um, what I take away is, um, oh, like this. If body and soul are meant to be fused, then I'm going to give you a different way to look at the parts of you that you want to run away from. Everyone has bad habits, bad impulses, right? Everyone, everyone has that part of them that they're trying to run away from. Don't try to run away from it. Encompass it. Or better, harness it. If you were given this body, it's part of the purpose. Hashem gave the two opposites of even light and dark, not to just run to the light and run away from the dark. You want to fuse the light and dark, and you want to reveal how they're both coming from the same Hashem. They're both coming from the same Hashem. And in your personal life as well, if you have pieces that you find that are very bodily, I want to get rid of them, I want to be more 
I want to be a better person. Everyone says, I want to be a better person. When they say they want to be a better person, they're obviously stating that there's parts of them they want to leave up behind. No. Have a wholesome approach. Take your whole self. I'll end up with a story. This story encapsulates a lot what we said in this class. Rabbi Yehuda Avner was a, uh, a great, in the, in the political scene in Israel, was a, a great shining star. He passed away recently. Rabbi Yehuda Avner was actually an, an, a political advisor to five prime ministers for both the right and the left in Israel. Um, he wrote a, a biography, which is fascinating, because he was, he was an uh, advisor to Golda Meir, an advisor to, uh, to, 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 to the left, and then all of a sudden he was an advisor to Begin, and he compares the right and the left and his experiences. And then later on in life, he actually had, he was an ambassador to England for Israel and an ambassador to somewhere else. Um, but one of his standing positions in the Israeli government was that he was the liaison between the prime minister and the Rebbe. And because he was religious, and even when he was in lefty government, which was obviously comprised of less religious people, he was like the rabbi of the, of the scene. So he was always the, the, like, the liaison to the Rebbe. So he, he, he merited to have a lot of discussions with the Rebbe um, about political affairs in Israel, and the Rebbe was very, very, very knowledgeable. Very knowledgeable. So one time, they went with, um, it was when Begin went, when he just became prime minister, he went to meet President Jimmy Carter in, uh, in, 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 uh, in America, and it was a very tense time in the Bachelor. He, he himself describes it in his book. It was pretty tense, because Jimmy Carter was left-leaning, and all of a sudden, Jimmy Carter was very, very, he really wanted to be, he was really hoping that the prime minister in Israel was going to be um, Rabin. Um, and he'll win the, the election so that he had someone to work with. Comes Begin, and Begin says, you know, we're not giving an inch of land away. And all of Jimmy Carter's big dreams of becoming the big peacemaker in the Middle East kind of fell away. So it was a very tense time. But Menachem Begin comes to meet the, you know, as every new administration comes in the White House, the very prime minister has to come and make a visit. So he came with his delegation, and it was a very, very high profile event, especially in Chabad, because it was the only time that I think a sitting prime minister came to the Rebbe, and, and, and it was um, in 770. Um, the press was there, the TV was there, the security was there. There was, there was there's videos of this, of Menachem Begin um, 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 uh, visiting the Rebbe, and you see in the videos, standing behind Menachem Begin, Yehuda Avner was his kippah, you know, he was a religious Jew. And... And when they ended the meeting, and Menachem Begin asked the Rebbe for his blessings for the talks they were going to have at Camp David with the president, um, Menachem Begin promised the Rebbe that after the talks and negotiations, I'm going to send Yudavner back to the seventy to, to report on how it went. So um, after the talk, he sent, um, which was not so fruitful. Um, the, it, it, they weren't fruitful at the time, but the, but, but the Sadat, who was the president of Egypt, eventually went himself to the Israelis and made peace without Jimmy Carter. But at the time, it was very tense, and they kind of they walked away with nothing on the table. But Yehudah Nair, before going back to Israel, he went back to New York himself, went to the Rebbe's room, and gave a full report of the, the discussion. From that meeting, it was a very intense meeting, because they, not only did they give a report, but he started talking about his personal life. They had a very, very intimate conversation. So the Rebbe... Um, was he talked about, he didn't really reveal um, what, all, everything that went on in that meeting, but there's one thing that stood out that he, he shared with the world. He said, tell me, what's the, what's the purpose of a Rebbe? What does the Rebbe do? Tell me, give me a definition. So a chassid would never ask this to the Rebbe, right? You need someone who's like not a chassid to have like the chutzpah to ask the Rebbe himself, what do you, what's your job description? What do you think? What, what? The Rebbe said like this, 
a person is like a candle. You have the wick, you have the wax. The wick is like your soul, the wax is like the body. And the wick is inside the, the candle. The purpose of the body and the soul together is that a flame should touch the wick. And only when a flame touches the wick does the candle become a candle. Like it fulfills its purpose. Only then are the body and soul fused. Yehudah Avner asked the Rebbe, says, Rebbe, have you ignited my soul? Oh, sorry, the Rebbe said, my job is to, to, to light the flame. My job is to light the flame. So I give people, I give them the fusion between body and soul. So Yehudah Avner asked the Rebbe, Rebbe, have you ignited my soul? The Rebbe told him, I gave you the match and you'll ignite your own soul. So this encapsulates everything we said in this class because the body and soul is supposed to be confused. But in the Chabad thought, which comes from the Tanya, the fusion itself is going to come from, your, from yourself. And we're going to learn the Tanya, and we're going to learn the methodology and the method that, that Rabbi Shneur Zaman actually lays out on how to reveal your own neshama. But it's something that you on your own have to do. And that, the Rebbe, who's obviously a descendant of the Alter Rebbe, and he was the, the one who got this tradition, took it to its nth degree.